Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 382 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. Duke is coming off an enormous victory against the Syracuse Orange in Cameron Indoor Stadium. We need to talk about that. We need to preview the Clemson game this week. We need to uh, react to the beginning of tenting, which uh, it seems like happened on campus this week. So we'll talk about all of those things. I am your host for this episode. I am Sam Klein coming to you from Boston. I am sorry, first of all, Duke fans, that I was not on the last show. It was a uh, somewhat hectic week. We couldn't all get the schedules to align, but I am back now. Donald Wine and Jason Evans are also with me. Donald, uh, how are you, sir? I'm doing great this morning. Uh, last night, I had a virtual wine tasting, um, which was pretty cool. Basically, I won one in a charity auction that I went to, same when I was in Boston last month. So uh, me and a few friends were able to uh, go to the Spanish wine region and kind of use that as our theme for our wine tasting. So that was pretty wait, cool. Wait, can, Donald, can I ask, the, the wine wasn't virtual. It was that you all were set, right? <laughs> no, no. Um, we are not in the world of metaverse slash nft wine i i drank actual wine last night we, we don't do i don't NFT i don't know wine that either. i want to be in that world i'm, <laughs> I'm no i don't either the, i don't either in the real drinks in the real world uh world it's coming jason, soon uh in in the unfortunate real world jason evans is recovering from covid uh, jason how are you feeling sir we can see folks uh, we, we don't release the video of this but we know that jason is sporting a really strong uh five o'clock three days from now shadow or so no, that, hey, dude, this is seven days. This is a seven week days of weird going on. It's pretty impressive, I think. Thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I'm doing I'm doing quite, quite, quite better. Uh, really, all I have at this point is a little bit of a cough that comes every, you know, 10 or 15 minutes there. There's no headaches, no sniffles. I am on the uh, very, very uh, ending downhill slope of my uh, my week long battle with COVID. And yeah, I didn't shave. Um, it's a uh, uh, no shave COVID or whatever <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been practicing uh, no shave every month for years now, and uh, I recommend it. Um, you might have to trim up except for occasion. except for the top, except for yeah, the top. Oh yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's ironic because I do shave the top, but I don't shave the I don't shave the the bottom. So in any event, I have one more uh, personal question for each of you. Uh, what is your? I don't know if we discussed this yet uh, this season, but what is your status on Girl Scout cookie consumption? Uh, for this Girl Scout cookie season? Either of you may answer first. So, so my status is I have not gotten any Girl Scout cookies yet, and I'm going to make an appeal right now. If you are in the Sandy Springs, Georgia area, and you would like to sell Girl Scout cookies, come to my house. I will, I will <laughs> eat all the Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> I, I have not purchased any yet. However, usually I order a, a box or two from a Girl Scout troop that is in New York City. Um, what's special about the New York City one is that there's a, a Girl Scout troop there who the money goes to helping find rooms for the homeless and getting them off the streets and getting them into uh, warm shelters. So I, I think that's a, a cool way to use the money. And so I usually throw them a, a couple, couple boxes worth of money every year. When you do get around to it, I recommend the French toast ones. I think that it's a relatively Oh, yes, they're flavor. really good. But if you haven't yes, had the French toast ones, really, they are, they're incredible. Because I'm they're usually, incredible. I'm all about the shortbread, man. I Like a little Girl Scout cookie. The, the man, that, that says so much about you, Jason. <laughs> the, 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 I used the to Lorna do the lemon dunes, creams. The Lorna Dunes, 
with milk is like heaven. But French toast sounds really good. I may check. Yeah, the out. French toast ones are good. Anyway, that's my that's my uh, that's my searing thought of the day. We need to talk about the Duke game uh, because after the the up and down roller coaster of the FSU game, uh, this one yesterday in Cameron was uh, relatively breezy for the Blue Devils. It was a seventy nine to fifty nine victory. It wasn't even that close. Jim Beheim left the starters in down the stretch, and they they closed a thirty point lead into a twenty point lead uh to uh to make it i don't even know if they made it respectable but um they didn't make it a 30 point victory for duke they made it a 20 point victory for duke so let's start with headlines and we are going to do something slightly out of order this week because we got we had asked folks uh i think a week ago to start sending us headlines and we've gotten a ton of them so jason i want you to read a couple of the headlines that uh we've received from listeners for this game Absolutely. And, and we got some good ones. Uh, I'll start with uh, a, a longtime friend of the podcast, uh, David Kerman, the K-Man. He said he, he, uh, several people did this. They sort of went with the uh, the whole orange kind of thing, as in, uh, you know, orange is the fruits. Um, so K-Man's headline was Duke defense squeezes the orange. Uh, we also got a good one from Ken Hepps, who said, no excuses. Duke crushes the orange. And it's worth noting, this is one that you have to see to understand. He highlighted the cues part of excuses. Um, and Brian oh, Campbell. Clever. Yes, very clever. I like that one. Brian Campbell wrote us this one. Uh, I like this. A little callback mm-hmm. to, uh, to trading places here. He said, orange futures bottom out as Duke's <laughs> deep threes blanket the cues. Um, and the deep threes is like a, a play on uh, deep freeze because uh, obviously freezing weather is bad for orange futures. So I like all those. Those are some clever stuff. Keep them coming, people. Those were, those were really good. This is why we asked the re- the listeners to, to send these in because some of them are very, very clever. We appreciate them. So, Jason, now that you've given us the listener headlines, can you give us your own headline from this game? Yes, and I want to note that my headline was done prior to looking at any of theirs. I, I, <laughs> so there was I, no cheating involved. No cheating. No, no cheating happened here. Uh, I just went with uh, a little bit of alliteration. Uh, my headline is dominant defense smothers Syracuse. I like it. Donald, what did you have? So mine was also done without looking at these, but was done while in, in honor of what I was doing while watching this game, which was having brunch. And so it is a champagne Saturday as Duke makes mimosas out of orange. Oh, I like that one too. I like that's really good, Donald. That is really good. I, I had I had no references to Syracuse in my headline. I went with no keels, but no keeling. Because because Duke didn't tip over in the process of having no Trevor keels. Anyway, I don't know if that one landed, but yeah. we are going to talk about the, yeah. the outcome here and, and we'll get into the details of it. So, Donald, I'll let you go first. I feel like there were a number of players here that you could highlight to start. So I'm not going to dictate the, the terms of engagement. Why don't you just tell us what your favorite thing is in the good from this victory for Duke? Look, I'm just going to start with the team as a general. And I think there's two areas that I thought they excelled in against Syracuse. So I'm going to start on the offense. 25 assists on 30 made baskets. That is a season high. That is exactly what we talked about in the preview on how you beat the patented matchup 2-3 zone by passing, passing your way out of it, finding open men, Finding the finding the loopholes and the cracks in in this defense, and then targeting them. That's exactly what Duke did. Uh, a lot of guys had great great efforts on the offensive end. 
scoring was even paced because everyone was passing the ball around. Jeremy Roach, I'm going to single him out, having nine assists, uh, really moving the ball around and making sure that everyone was getting involved. And only one turnover. And only one turnover. It led to a lot of excellent plays, right? Like that. that's what, what passing the ball around will get you. Yes, it may get you some some turnovers because, you know, you might become a little errant when, in your passing. But I think these guys did exceptionally well at finding each other with the basketball. And it shows not just on the assist column, but it shows in the fact that, you know, the scoring was even everybody save for Jeremy Roach had 15 points in the starting lineup. So I thought that was very good distribution of the basketball. Hey, hey the, the assist total for Duke is wrong. Guys, I, I don't know how the official score messed this up, but they said that A.J. Griffin had zero assists. Uh, that's completely wrong. A.J. Griffin clearly deserves an assist for allowing Wendell Moore to put his hand on A.J.'s shoulder to elevate for an extra <laughs> second and make a ridiculous rebound dunk. It's an assist, an assist in a different way. Yes, it's an assist in a different way, but it doesn't count apparently in the stats. We here at the Duke Basketball Report podcast do not care about the official stats, so credit one assist to A.J. Griffin. Donald, you brought up that Jeremy Roach was one of the key facilitators. It was he and Wendell Moore who were really leading the way on the on on the facilitating, which and we, we've talked a lot about how Wendell Moore fills up the stat sheet, not just in in the points, but also in rebounds and assists this season. He had another 10-5-5 game with, with 15 points, eight assists, and six boards. But I wanted to come back to Jeremy Roach because it's not only that he had nine assists and and only turned the ball over once. It's that he looked so comfortable right after the, uh, you know, the, the, I guess, minor turmoil in his season that he had gotten benched. And I don't think he was benched because he's, you know, so incapable and that he's not playing a role. We talked about this extensively, you know, two games ago, but kind of a roller coaster for Jeremy Roach personally, getting benched, then getting back in the starting lineup because of an injury to his friend Trevor Keels. And he responded, I think, pretty brilliantly in this game. So one of the reasons I think that, that Duke was so crisp on offense is that Jeremy Roach stepped right back into a role that he was comfortable with. Look, he didn't make a lot of shots yesterday, but Duke didn't need him to. Jason, what uh, what have you got to sort of start off the good here? Yeah, so so my good, I'm going to start on the other side of the ball. I want to start with the defense. Um, and, and I, I want to be really clear about something. There was great defense by Duke in this game, and I'm going to talk about it a bit, but there was also some luck, and luck matters. Luck is a factor in whether or not you win basketball games. There's no two ways about it. Buddy Bayheim and Joe Girard are really, really good basketball players who are outstanding shooters, and both of them missed wide-open shots that they would normally make. Now, part of why they were missing was because Wendell Moore and and Jeremy Roach were in their were in their shorts all day long but part of it was also that those guys had an off day so I I want to be really clear that I, I think that that mattered that, that luck played a factor in Duke's defense in this game that said Buddy Beheim is is an all ACC level player and he did not score a single point until the margin was 30 points this game I want to repeat that Duke got the lead to 30 before Buddy Beheim, the leading scorer for Syracuse, an all-ACC player, before he scored a single point in the game, Duke was already leading by 30. Joe Girard um, was just absolutely hammered by Jeremy Roach all day. It was amazing to me how well Roach was able to stay on Girard. And combined, Buddy Beheim and Joe Girard shot 2 of 19 from 3, 5 of 28 overall. 
And, and by the way, you know, I, they, they made five shots, but several of those were in mop-up time when Jim Beheim was playing his starters against our walk-ons. I've been tracking it all year long, as you guys know, especially lately, I should say, um, that Duke's opponents just don't shoot three-pointers very well against them. Since New Year's Day, since the calendar turned, Duke's opponents are 29 of 135 on three-pointers. That's 23%. Duke's opponents are hitting 23% of their threes. If Duke keeps this up, I don't know that they can because that's just an absurd number. But if Duke keeps that up, it's really, really hard to beat them. And, and the offshoot of this is how it affects our efficiency defensively. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys noticed, but um, on Ken Palm, Duke went from being the 26th best defensive team to the 20th best defensive team in the nation based on just this Syracuse game. The story of the game, as, as much as we talked about the assists, to me, the story of the game is that Duke stopped Syracuse from doing what they wanted to do. Syracuse only scored 59 points, and 11 of those points came in the final four minutes when Duke was playing backups and walk-ons. So against our starters, Syracuse couldn't even get to 50. I mean, Jason, I think that last stat that you mentioned there is reason why, yes, I think there was some luck, but I don't think luck had a lot to do with it. I think the great thing about Duke's defense yesterday is that they forced Syracuse to work extremely hard to take mediocre shots. Like that, that's the great thing about this defense. Exactly. Even if, exactly. even if they were even to get like getting shots off, you know, open shots. Yeah. They had a few open shots and they, and they missed that's where the luck came in. They missed some of that, but I'll take that because we haven't had, we've had some unlucky bounces go our way uh, in the last couple of weeks. I think the key though, is that these guys were forcing them to move the ball around. And you know, those shots that were, you know, that were taken were with three, two seconds left in the shot clock. They were, it wasn't, didn't look forced, but the entire offense for them looked forced because they were trying to find any angle they could against Duke's defense and Duke wouldn't allow it. So I thought they did really good at making Syracuse work extremely hard to take, you know, the last shot available as opposed to the shot they wanted. And as you said, Jason, Syracuse's offense normally is actually uh, pretty efficient and, and they have those good shooters. So it's a, it's a real testament to Duke. Not, you know, I, I think it'd be it'd be hard to come away from this game and think that oh, the Duke defense is 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 so elite and the Duke offense is good. I mean, th- there's a there's some uh, there's some bias here in that Syracuse is so lopsided, and not being very good uh, on the defensive end, but um, still a, a great effort nonetheless. Jason, I want to come back to you and talk about a few of the individual performances from this game because we did say that the Duke was sharing the ball very well, but there were a couple of of outstanding offensive performances here. And I think you are going to talk about the guy who is probably Duke's most electric offensive player. That's Paulo Bancaro. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to give you a little preview right now of who I'm going to be picking for player of the week. <laughs> uh, this week, Paulo Bancaro averaged 17 and a half points per game, 12 and a half rebounds per game, five and a half assists per game while shooting almost 55% from the field. He is doing such a better job of shot selection and finding open teammates and not forcing things. He has figured out what works for him each different game and really excelling at it. And I, and I think, uh, you know, in our preview, we talked about how important Paulo's role would be because Duke against the Syracuse zone, we, we we were going to have to play through him a lot. And, and I just thought he did a tremendous job of not taking bad shots, him and the entire team not taking bad shots and, and, and just making passes that 
that made it difficult for the Syracuse zone. You can't just shoot over the Syracuse zone. You have to pass around it and pass over it. And Duke just did an excellent job of attacking it all day long. Um, you know, yeah, we shot a ton of threes, but I, and but most teams that play Syracuse do that. We mentioned in the preview that more than half the field goals that teams shoot against Syracuse are three pointers. And Duke shot 37 threes, which is a ton, but we, we didn't just settle for threes. We, we, we looked to see if we could get the ball where we needed it to be. And we took very few bad jumpers. And look, this is something that Paulo was doing earlier in the year. Not that any shot from him is a terrible shot, but he was taking, you know, lower percentage shots and he stopped doing that in this game. Duke only took two shots in between the lane and the three-point line, two mid-range shots. Everything else we took was basically at the rim or beyond the three-point line. Those two shots were, there was a 16-footer that Joey Baker took. You know, it was one of those patented times where he fakes a guy off the three-point line, takes a dribble in and, and shoots a short jumper. He, he missed it, but he took a 16-footer. And there was like a 10-foot baseline jumper from Jeremy Roach. Uh, again, that shot missed as well. I should tell you why Duke should not take these shots <laughs> outside the lane. We, we missed both of them in this game. Um, but other than that, it was all three-pointers or, and by the way, open three-pointers, not forced three-pointers, or shots in the lane, mostly shots at the rim. And then the other guy I wanted to mention really quickly, welcome back to Wendell Moore. Um, you know, Wendell yes. had had, Wendell had had, we, we've been tracking the 10, five and five games. He'd only had one of them against ACC opponents so far this year. Um, his assist to turnover ratio had really been suffering lately, but in this game, he gets eight assists and just one turnover. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, his defense on Buddy Beheim was a telling point in this game. Welcome back, Wendell Moore. I would also add to that list, Jason. I, I agree with all of your, all, all of your highlight selections. I would also add Mark Williams, who was, you were talking about the, the zone breaking. Yes. There's yes. an element of that. That's Mark Williams being down low often standing behind the zone and either being ready for, for an entry pass or more importantly, for a lot of the cleanups uh, that were happening yesterday. There were, there were some really nice dunks from Mark and, Williams. And, and Sam, if I can, look, I, I always point out when we were right on the preview, you know, oh, we previewed this, we previewed that. Something we previewed that I was very wrong. And I said, it, I was very wrong about it. I said, Mark Williams may not play a big role in this game. Syracuse doesn't take the ball to the basket and stuff. And, and on defense, he, he only blocked one shot. Syracuse doesn't take the ball to the basket. But Mark Williams was played a big role on offense and on rebounding. Uh, I want to shout out my best friend, Jeff, because he sent me this this morning. Did you guys see there was one dunk that Mark Williams had where he kind of did the, the toppy thing that they do with their heads? They pat their heads. But he pointed at the Syracuse guy that he dunked on, a la Sean Kemp. And I, I don't know how he didn't get a tech for it. But I really, it was really disrespectful him doing that. It was, it was very really disrespectful, disrespectful, and I loved it. Do more of that. Like, do, like out of the out of the eyes of the ref. Because honestly, I'm I'm super shocked because TV Teddy was refing yesterday, so I'm super shocked that he didn't get a technical for it. But I'm here for that disrespect. It's okay. Ted Valentine did his best to uh, to thwart Duke by running in the way of of one of his yeah. passes on the break, um, which, which caused a turnover. That was that, that was, was crazy. Ted Valentine. <laughs> Did yeah. they did pl please say they made that a team turnover instead of like like crediting that to whoever it was that threw the ball because that's I, just that's just was wrong. it it was more that was passing it I think yes um, it was. yeah and Joey Baker was right there on the sideline so uh, so Wendell Moore gets the turnover there I believe for the, I think that was that was Wendell Moore's one turnover was I, was I think you're right the, throwing I think the ball right. off of Ted Valentine so so <laughs> otherwise otherwise a flawless that 
that pass, I mean, there are a lot of times when we say like, oh, if only this one thing had been this other thing. I mean, that pass was was him throwing it to Joey Baker in the corner on the break. That was almost certainly going to turn into a into another assist. So, oh, yeah, uh, Ted Valentine really, really ruining things for for Wendell Moore there. But on mm-hmm. on the topic of of Mark Williams, yeah, he doesn't he's not going to block a lot of shots if the ball's not going to the rim. But I like the aggressiveness on offense. I, I think that there's um, there's a lot to be gained for Duke if Mark Williams is acting like that dude uh, on offense and, and not being, um, not sort of waiting for things to come to him, but, but go in and get it. All right. Let's talk about the bad a little bit. I know that it's, it's hilarious to think that there's much bad in a 20 point victory. That was really a 30 point victory, um, save for, for the garbage time. But Jason, I'll, I'll come to you first. Give me anything from the bad, uh, for a, a 20 point win for Duke. All right. So yeah, I don't have a lot to say here. I got two little things and I'll, I'll do them very quickly. First one is turnovers. Duke did have 15 turnovers in this game. And remember um, in the preview, I was talking, not in the preview, but in the recap really of the, of the Florida State loss, I, I mentioned that the magic number for Duke is 12, that Duke wins games if they get less than 12 or less turnovers and they lose games if they commit more than 12 turnovers. Well, Duke had 15 turnovers and they won quite easily. <laughs> um, and some of those were in the final few minutes when, when the deep bench was playing. But, but Duke had 10 turnovers in the first half, including there was a wretched eight-minute stretch in the first half from like the 16-minute mark to the eight-minute mark where Duke had eight turnovers in eight minutes. We had a nine-point lead, and we gave it away completely, and Syracuse got back in the game. But, um, but Duke really cleaned it up. I mean, the turnover story, even though it's bad, Duke really cleaned it up in the second half. We only had five turnovers in the second half. And the amazing thing is, even here I am in the bad. I'm saying good things in the bad. I can't help it. Despite committing more turnovers than I'd like, Duke won the points off turnover battle 20 to 13. I mean, I guess we're going to win any point battle in a game. We win by 30. Anyway, uh, the other bad thing I had, um, free throws. And part of this is just the way Syracuse plays defense, but it's really hard to penetrate a matchup zone. Um, and we were largely content to both either shoot over their zone or pass behind their zone for buckets. So Duke only got to the free throw line seven times in this game. That's a really, really low number. Um, but it comes just days after Florida State shot more free throws, sorry, made more free throws than Duke shot. Um, I, 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 this Duke team need, does need to be getting to the free throw line. Uh, I, I think Syracuse is just a weird opponent. It's just an aberration. But if, if you got to identify something as bad, Duke had too many turnovers and did not shoot enough free throws in this game. There weren't a lot of fouls called at all in this game. I noticed that like at the end of the first half, Duke committed a foul um, that was, you know, like a, a non-shooting foul. And I went to go look like, oh, how many how many fouls are there? And it was the end of the the half. And I think between the two teams, there had been like six or seven fouls called. I noticed that, that too. Yeah. Game. So so, you know, some of that is Syracuse's style of play, but some of it might just be that um, I know that I've read that the the refs are calling fewer and fewer fouls in college basketball and letting the guys play through. You know, you can you can debate whether that's a that's a good thing aesthetically for the game or not. But um but I think that's also just the nature of, of how it was being played yesterday. I think when it comes to the turnovers and just piggybacking a little bit off of Jason, the thing about turnovers in this game is not necessarily that it, it, you know, caused us to do anything terrible, but it does get us into scoring ruts. And we've noticed over the last few games, we do have a lot of turnovers in one half. It leads to a scoring rut and good teams will take advantage of that. And I think that's the key of improving the turnovers as we go on earlier in the year we weren't giving teams that opportunity to you know catch up from a lead or to take a size of a lead because 
we were taking care of the basketball and we were getting points on most of those possessions. If you turn the ball over, you're not getting any points. And if guys are going down on the other end and scoring, that becomes a problem. Syracuse didn't really do that, save for that one time in the first half where they kind of, you know, got a nine point lead down like one or two. They never led in this ballgame and they never the only time they were tied was at the opening tip. But I think when it comes to better teams, if you get in a scoring rut, you're allowing them to get back into the game. And that's what Duke has to curtail by taking care of the basketball. Guys, before we move on from the bad and and start to preview the Clemson game, I did want to come back to one more good thing. And and it's a I think it's a, an oversight um, from the fact that Duke had such a thorough performance yesterday and from the fact that he's been playing this guy in particular has been playing well so well recently. But A.J. Griffin made five threes yesterday against Syracuse. And we like it, it's incredible how quickly he's gone from, you know, uh, returning from injury, limited minutes, not even necessarily the first guy off the bench to being like key starter, best shooter on the team, like undeniably at this point, I think best shooter on the team. Joey Baker might be slightly more efficient from three. And I, I, I haven't checked today if uh, who's leading in three point percentage. But in terms of usage, A.J. Griffin's like actually getting the shots and actually having plays designed for him. And you can tell that teammates are looking for A.J. Uh, to to set him up for the three. So that is just another incredible performance from him, a guy who has been coming on really strong the last few weeks. He came on early. I mean, if you remember, the first two possessions were him hitting threes, and they looked to get to him early. And honestly, like I said, that proved to be super important in the game because it stretched Syracuse defense out just a little bit. And that's when we were able to go inside because, again, if you start off hitting the three very well, they're going to have to slide out to match that. And try and, and try and stop that. And because of that, more holes were open. And that's what Duke was, you know, trying to exploit with all those passes. And, and the deep irony about AJ Griffin going off early against Syracuse is that Jim Beheim said in the postgame that his scouting report on this game, that what he told his team was with Trevor Keels out, they need to focus on AJ Griffin. He's like, This is the guy you have to watch out for. This is the guy we can't let hit three pointers, you know. And and Duke comes out and, and AJ immediately hits like two or three in the first like couple minutes to give Duke an early lead. And if you're Jim Beheim, you must be like, oh, great. You know, like the one thing I said we had to do, we're not doing it from the very start of the game. All right. We will take a quick break. When we get back, we will do a, a brief Clemson preview because we've already previewed them once. We're going to get to preview Clemson uh, at least three times this season for you because we already previewed them once for the game that got canceled. We'll preview them here and we'll preview them one more time when Duke has to play the rescheduled game. And by the way, Duke could play Clemson in the ACC tournament, so you might get four Clemson previews out of the DBR podcast. This will be the second one. Stick around. We are back and we are previewing Clemson. Duke gets the Tigers on Tuesday in Cameron Indoor Stadium. This is a game that is uh, on schedule as it has been since the beginning of the season. Duke, of course, was supposed to play at Little John a few weeks ago. That game has been rescheduled to a couple weeks from now. So we already gave you one version of the Clemson preview. We would encourage you in some respects to go back and listen to that, but we'll catch you up sort of on, on how the Tigers have done the last few weeks. It has not been uh, great going for that team. Donald, I will come to you first. 
because uh, you are usually my man for looking at the schedule. So tell me what has happened to Clemson since we last spoke about them eh, about a month ago. Yeah, and if you recall back then, and, and if you want to have a full thorough preview of what we had up to December 22nd, at least, go back to that episode and uh, listen to that. But since then, remember, they had just come off a victory against UVA, which at that time proved to be, oh, that's kind of an interesting victory. And then they were supposed to play us next, and of course, that game got uh, postponed. So the next team they did play was Virginia, and they ended up losing to Virginia on January 4th. Since that game, they have not played very well. They only have two wins in their last five games. Uh, those wins coming against NC State and just yesterday against Pittsburgh. Uh, they've lost to Notre Dame, Boston College, and Syracuse. So this team is kind of reeling, and they're trying to get back on track because right now they're tied for 10th in the ACC, and this is a team that earlier in the season we were talking about them being kind of one of the surprises of the ACC and how they were playing and some of the teams that not necessarily they were beating, but they were playing tough against tough opponents. So they're going to come into Cameron. They're going to want to be on fire for this game because they want to get a signature win to kind of get them back on track in the ACC. So Jason, how have the, how have the metrics adjusted at all for Clemson during this recent skid yesterday's drubbing of Pittsburgh, notwithstanding. Yeah, they were uh, they were better in the metrics when we looked at them last time. That's for sure. The Clemson's currently 65th in Ken Palm. They were in the low 50s, as I recall, when we previewed them last time. Not a huge difference, but but definitely indica- uh, indicative of a team that is struggling lately. Um, they have the 54th best offense, the 83rd best defense. So I guess you could say, uh, you know, sort of on both sides of the ball there. They're they're good. They're OK, but they're they're not. They're not great at either at either aspect of, uh, of playing basketball. Let's start with the offense. Um, they are an excellent three-point shooting team. This is their strength. They hit um, better than 38% of their threes. That's the 17th best in the country. Um, they're good, but not nearly as good at hitting two-point field goals. They hit about 51, 52% of their uh, two-point field goals, which is right around the top 100 in the nation. They don't turn the ball over a lot, and they don't give up many steals. They're top 40 in the country at preventing steals. So what don't they do well on offense? Because those things are all like, yeah, you know, those are the, all the hallmarks of a, of a decent offense. They, they get their shots blocked a lot. That's the thing they don't do well. Um, they're, they're among the bottom 50 teams in the country at getting their shots blocked. And they're not a very good offensive rebounding team. They grab just 27% of their missed shots, which is a very low figure. Good offensive rebounding teams are up in the mid to high 30s and sometimes even 40% of their missed shots. Clemson, again, grabbing, grabbing just 27%. On the defensive side of the ball, uh, they do an okay job of guarding the three-point line. Not great, but not bad. Um, uh, Their opponents hit just under a third of their threes. Clemson doesn't really block shots. They don't really get steals. They don't get turnovers very much. They're like in the bottom 100 teams in the country in all those sort of steal and block kind of numbers and stuff like that. So they, they they don't do a great job of preventing you from doing what you want to do. Um... Uh, the and uh, this is something I mentioned when we previewed them last time. They are phenomenally unlucky about one thing: opponent free throw percentage. We talked about this last time. Their opponents are still hitting like seventy-eight percent from the free throw line, which is just crazy that they have such bad free throw percentage defense. It's it's very very weird. Uh, and I I do want to talk very quickly about their experience. Again, this is something we mentioned last time, but it still holds true. This is a team with almost all juniors and seniors playing uh, the only real 
The only there's like one freshman who plays a little bit and, and, and then sophomore PJ Hall, who's their best player, uh, is the only other sophomore who gets a lot of time. And they are a small team. Uh, their, their guards and wings are, are all guys who are six, four and under. Um, they don't have much rim protection at all. PJ Hall's their, their tallest player and he's not a rim protector. There could be real opportunities here. I think for Wendell Moore and AJ Griffin, especially and Trevor Keels that Trevor Keels plays. It's, it's unclear whether Trevor Keels is going to be back for this game, uh, which is great news, by the way, that he's not going to be out for a long time, apparently, but, but Duke's guys who can slash to the hole. Um, Clemson doesn't have the size on their guards to be able to prevent Duke from doing that. And they don't have rim protection to, to stop Duke from getting to the rim. So I think that could be a key to the game. And, and then going back to sort of the initial thing I mentioned, Clemson, Clemson lives by being a great three-point shooting team. And as I talked about with Duke earlier, Duke is among the best teams in the country at preventing teams from hitting threes. This is a case of, you know, an immovable object and an irresistible force. And, and we will see which one triumphs. Um, if Duke prevents Clemson from hitting a third of their threes, which Duke usually prevents teams from hitting even a quarter of their threes, if Clemson doesn't hit a third of their threes, Clemson has no chance in this game. Yeah, I really want to see Duke lock it down on, on, on the perimeter on defense in this game, which, as you pointed out, Jason, has been a strength recently. Whether or not Keels is in the game, I, and I think, by the way, that Keels is a, is a plus uh, at that end of the court, but uh, even without him, Duke has Wendell Moore, Jeremy Roach, and A.J. Griffin to be guarding on the perimeter. And then down low, I want to see Duke take advantage of the size difference here. You mentioned that P.J. Hall is, is the biggest guy on this team. And, he, you know, he's not, a, um, he's not a real, like, imposing type big. Duke has two guys in the starting lineup who uh, should be able to, to overpower PJ hall at, at that end of the court. That's Mark Williams and Paulo Bancaro. So I want to see Duke uh, decisively win a rebounding battle again against Clemson, the way that they did against Syracuse. And I, I want to see Bancaro and Williams uh, in particular, take it to PJ hall and the rest of the limited Clemson front court on offense, where uh, hopefully they'll be able to dominate. This may be a game where, you know, Duke, Duke, I, I hope this is a game where Duke relies on um, on the on the layups and the and the offense around the basket even more than they have in recent weeks, which is saying something because I think that's a key part of the offense. So we'll see how how Duke does against Clemson on Tuesday. And one final note, I, I think this is important because uh, this is the last home game in Cameron before we go on what will now be a three game road trip. So uh, we have that momentum. Cameron was wild yesterday. I want to shout out the crazies. I want to shout out everybody who's at the game because it sounded electric on television. They need to replicate that for Tuesday. Bring that energy because I know Duke will need it in this game. Guys, one more fun thing before we get to player of the week. Did you all see this Chronicle story this week about the the uh, pre-tenting uh, quiz that was going on in Cameron? I don't want to oh, labor... Yes. I don't want to yes. belabor the story by asking you all to uh, to to fill out the quiz questions and tell we, we me. Got, yeah, we got many emails saying y'all should take the quiz. I ain't taking that quiz. We don't, I don't. <laughs> we we ain't in school. I uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not in school. I've done. I've done enough. Uh, I've done enough Duke schooling to uh, to not have to do this. And also, I cannot remember which recruits were were in Cameron for for particular events. Actually, so wait. I knew that one. That the, the one asking which recruits were were there for countdown. I I knew that one. I can't but, yeah. I, I can't keep up with that stuff. So <laughs> nor do I know the uh, the margins of victory or the dates of any of the games. 
um, that kind of that kind of information just leaks right out of me now. Right. So it's worth noting everyone who looked at that quiz and went, oh, my God, it's crazy. It's impossible. They studied the, the player, the guys who took this quiz, all, you know, all the all the Duke fans who wanted not Duke fans, Duke students, I should say, who wanted to, you know, get to the front of the tenting line and make sure they had a spot in Cameron for Coach K's final game uh, against North Carolina. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. They studied and they knew what to study. They knew they were supposed to study, you know, all the different information about the guys on the team, study their social media accounts, study game results and stuff. So this isn't, you know, this isn't like a, oh, let's test your general knowledge. This is a go out there, learn everything you can about the current Duke basketball team, and then take a test on them. And so, of course, it looks silly and absurd to us. We haven't all been studying. It's not even that it's absurd, right? Like they've, they've done this test in previous years. This is not the first year for this. I think what can be commended for these students is the number of tents that signed up for this 179 mind you uh, you know jason you were a headline monitor i was a headline monitor in my time you could only have 100 tents in camera that was the max so 79 79 tents as of right now does not matter how well they did on that test they there's no spot for them in cameron for that game and they know that and they have to hope that you know a bunch of people you know mess up along the way for them to get an opportunity to get in at least as a student for that game so this is that's where i I think the studying came in because you know a point here a point there means is the difference between number 63 and number 147 yeah and uh one of my uh, one of the guys that i used to tent with (laughs) his son uh is is in one of the tents that made it into the you know that that passed the test, I guess you'd say, or, you know, scored high enough on the test. Um, his son is cur- obviously currently at Duke. And, and he told me that he and the guys in his tent, like spent winter break studying, <laughs> studying. Of course they did. They're Duke students. Of course yeah. they're going to study. We, yeah. we, we, we study for everything that we do. That's what, that's how we got into Duke. That's how you graduate from Duke. There is no surprise in me about them studying for this test, especially given the stakes. As I mentioned, this is for the last game in Cameron for coach K in his story career. Of course you want to study for that. You want to be a part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, by the way, guys, as long as we're talking about being in Cameron, did you guys notice, did you hear the game on Saturday, the game Duke played against Syracuse was the 50th anniversary, 50th anniversary of the day in 1972 that Duke indoor stadium became Cameron indoor stadium named obviously in honor of uh, athletic director, football coach, basketball coach, Eddie Cameron, who retired in 1972 and they honored him by, um, by renaming the stadium. So happy birthday to Cameron Indoor Stadium, 50 years, I guess today's Sunday. So 50 years and one day old on this date. Well, also the date, the birth date for the actual stadium is like January 6th or something like that. So I know we missed that. So a lot of, yeah. a lot of memories uh, in Cameron or, or Duke Indoor Stadium in January. Donald, I wanted to, to re-emphasize the point that you made about the, the number of tents. Um, if you, you know, if you're a, if you're a Duke alum and you sort of remember the, the whole tenting process, having 170 tents, uh, potentially going in for blue tenting is just so much more than it usually Mm -hmm. is. I mean, we've talked about how 
the excitement on campus has to be just that much higher given that they lost the season last year. And so there's all these students that haven't done it before and it's coach K's last season. So uh, the interest is out of control, which also means there are plenty of opportunities for the headline monitors to monkey around with the rules and, uh, and, and <laughs> let people in who, who, who aren't in the line. So well, uh, I'll be, be looking out for, I, I won't actually be doing this, but if I was a student, I'd be looking out for all of the shenanigans that are inevitable. I will say, I mean, black tinting, they, they added a, a level between the time I graduated now called black tinting that was canceled uh, because of COVID concerns. And then usually, as you guys know, like blue tinting was the, for the die hardest to die hard to be 10 people a night. There wouldn't be that many tents that were going to subject themselves to basically everybody being in the tent every single night throughout the month of January. It was white tinting that got this sort of hoopla because that was the last like two or three weeks before the right, UNC right. game. They would reserve, but I think they would reserve like 30 or 20 tent spots for white tenting. So there would yes. only be like 70 or so blue tents. And the the groups at the back of the blue tent line would would in you know I think in a normal year would think to themselves, is it worth even going through blue tenting um to be right in front of the white tenters when we might just get a white tent spot and not have to work nearly as hard to get exactly know, the same corner of the stadium. So this yeah. is so you'd only have like 30 or completely something. other level. I, you know, the thing I the thing I noticed about it, you know, from the Chronicle article and from other stuff I've read about it, interviews with the with the various, you know, uh, blue tenters or blue tenting applicants is how many of them are juniors and seniors, because now look, in my day, we did it all four years, but but it's become more and more, uh, you know, a thing on campus where, oh, the 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 younger kids, the, the freshmen and the sophomores are the ones who who do the really diehard stuff. And as you as you've done it a couple of years, <laughs> you, you begin to age out of it, so to speak. That is not happening this year because as, as you ably identified, we didn't have any tenting last year. There were no fans in Cameron and everybody's saying goodbye to the goat. And, and that's such a huge, huge deal for this to be Coach K's final season. So I, I, that's probably why we saw just this absolute explosion of, of tents applying for the really rigorous blue tenting because everybody wants to make sure no matter what, that they will be there for the last game. Uh, just, just a personal note for me. Uh, I, uh, we're using this to kind of promote the, the camera crazies and to be a part of that atmosphere and it, you know, the hoopla this year. I just want to make a personal plea out there. I'm looking for tickets to the Wake Forest and the Florida State games, which are the week of February 15th and 19th. So if you have tickets that you're willing to uh, bestow upon me, dbrpodcast at gmail.com, holler at me. Donald, you are shameless. I love it. All right, shameless. We have one more topic. It is the topic we do every weekend uh, at the end of a week of Duke basketball. We have to do player of the week. Jason already gave us his. So Jason, I'll very quickly let you re-summarize why you're picking Paulo Bancaro. Uh, he averaged like not even just a, a double double, but the dude averaged what was it, uh, 17 and a half points and 12 and a half rebounds per game and five and a half assists. I, I want to highlight that. Uh, the fact that Paulo has turned into an assist machine, uh, you know, we're tracking Wendell Moore's 10, five and five. Paulo Bancaro is crushing on the 10, five and five these days. He's averaging this week 17, 12 and five. That's amazing does bring his actual uh, points per game total down or is his points per game average down, uh, which just goes to show you what an incredible year he's having. Uh, mm-hmm. But of, of course at the, uh, it, I think it's okay. Given the, the rest of the um, statistical excellence that he's putting up Donald, who do you have for player of the week? I think Paula Bancaro is the best choice. I think he is an excellent choice, but unfortunately he is not my choice. 
I'm going to use my my pick this week to show love to Jeremy Roach. Um, in a week where you know you kind of had uh, Trevor Keels go down, he had been in this new role coming off of the bench, uh, and he thrived in the one thing that we needed him to thrive in, and that's distributing the basketball. Six assists against FSU. Coach K said after that game, it was one of his best games at Duke. So he followed that up with what? Nine assists against Syracuse, a plus 27 in that game. And he only had two turnovers on the week. So being able to come off of the bench and get back into the starting lineup and use that as an opportunity to really pave the way for our team to just excel on the offensive end, I think is a good, good shot. So I'm going to show love to Jeremy Roach this week. I love that. I love that choice, Donald. I, I, I now almost regret picking Paulo. <laughs> no, Donald, don't regret it. I mean, those are two great, two, two excellent picks. Donald, you stole the explanation for Jeremy Roach right out of my mouth because I had <laughs> written up, I had written up two versions of my player of the week. I had written up one where I pick Paulo Bancaro for all of the obvious reasons that Jason had had stated that he was excellent in both games, despite the loss, you know, the, the uh, brief disappearing act in the Florida state game. It doesn't feel like it was entirely his fault. Um, some of that was executed by the other guys. I know you guys talked about the, the game planning a bit on the episode that I missed, but of course he, he came roaring back against Syracuse. So I had written out that explanation, but I had also written the whole thing about how Jeremy Roach deserves player of the week this week, because he in the Syracuse game really rebounded from the, um, from the setback that he suffered of, of getting, getting sent to the bench and may not have scored a lot, but really was, was a big driver of that quick victory against Syracuse. So I had both of those written up, but I think Paulo deserves it just, you know, without all the, all the extra contests. So I'm going to give my player of the week vote to Paulo Bancaro. That I think is going to do it for topics on this episode of the Duke basketball report podcast. Keep emailing us. The mailbag has been full. It's been a lot of fun to get those messages and we are um, frantically trying to respond to them all. So that has been excellent. We will be back after the Clemson game, uh, which is Tuesday night in Cameron. Uh, if you're going to be there, have fun, be safe. Uh, and we will talk to you again very soon. DBR podcast at gmail.com for all of your mailbag questions and comments, etc. for us. So for Jason Evans and for Donald Wine, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 382 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home. Yeah, Donald, you okay, got World cool. Cup qualifying coming up? Yeah. Three games in the snow, in the cold. Already. Nice. Are we not, are we not, we're home for all, all three games? Uh, we have two at home. The away game is in Canada, in Hamilton. That would be in the snow. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. Yeah. I, uh, when I think of World Cup, when I think of qualifying, I, I don't even think of, I mean, I know Canada's really good this year. I mean, like, they're a contender, mm -hmm. but I, I usually think of, oh, he goes to the Caribbean or he goes to Central America or something like that. Nah. Well, this is a unique window because of COVID. Um, we had to finish World Cup qualifying. So last year they added a January window. It's like the first time they've had one. Um, so, uh, you know, this is something where I actually had to buy jackets because um, I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have, I, I didn't need to worry about it for, for soccer games. So here yeah. we are.